you have been following the series of messages from Matthew's Gospel, and especially from the twelfth chapter of Matthew's Gospel, today's text may seem out of place. It may seem unrelated to the questions and the request of the scribes and Pharisees for Jesus to give them a sign. Maybe you are asking here, as I read the text, maybe you're asking yourself this morning, did, did I miss something? Have, have we changed the subject? Why are we suddenly talking about uh, unclean spirits or demons and people or a person who was possessed and then not possessed and then repossessed with more than the first possession? What is the connection here? Well, if you just go through your Bible and pick out portions of it to preach, you could take this particular text that I read today and you could go a thousand different directions and say a thousand different things about it, some biblical and some not. But if we keep this within the context which we are committed to do, we know that these verses do apply. They do fit to what, has been speak, what our Lord's been speaking about and what the scribes and Pharisees have been speaking about and questioning Jesus. I remind you, just previous to these verses, that there was a demon-possessed man brought to our Lord, possessed, blind, dumb, could not speak, and Jesus, of course, healed him. And if you remember, that is what prompted these scribes and Pharisees they claim the power by which our Lord did this miracle was from the devil himself, which our Lord responded and said it doesn't make sense for Satan to cast out Satan. That led to a charge of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and Jesus getting to the very heart of the issue, the very heart of these scribes and Pharisees, and yes, the very heart of the generation to whom He was speaking. They was a people that were void of any saving grace. And then after that, our Lord returned, or they returned to our Lord with a question about the, uh, for Him giving them a sign. And of course, Jesus told them in verse 39 that we've been looking at the past several Sundays that the last sign, or there would be no other sign given except that of Jonah the prophet, referring, of course, to the resurrection of our Savior from the dead. To further illustrate what our Lord has been saying to the scribes and Pharisees and reminding them that the Ninevites would sit in judgment on them because the Ninevites repented with a lot less light than did the scribes had at this particular time. And so they would actually sit in judgment on these scribes. And Jesus, as He continues now, is going to illustrate further in the present generation and the future generation as to what is going to happen to men who are not truly saved, who are not truly regenerated, who are not truly converted by God's amazing grace. Now I want to say right up front this morning that our Lord is not in this text giving a teaching or a discourse on demon possession or demonology. Most of the time when you hear these verses preached, that's where it goes. He's not doing an in-depth study here on demons and unclean spirits. 
As a matter of fact, demons and demonology or demon possession is a very difficult subject to understand. And the reason is because there is no passage in either Old or New Testament that gives us an exhaustive or in-depth teaching on the subject. However, there are a few things I want to say by way of introduction this morning so you will realize exactly what our Lord is saying to these scribes, to their generation, and what He is also saying to us. He's speaking here and He calls them an unclean spirit in verse number 43. These verses are loaded. If you love word studies, this is... This is a preacher's paradise. I mean, each word carries so many meanings. And there's an unclean spirit. There's a man in this story that Jesus says. There's a man who has an unclean spirit. Or we would say he may have a demon or be or possessed by a single demon. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, Jesus in this story says that this man who has this unclean spirit is somehow relieved of that unclean spirit. We don't know how that, how that could happen, whether uh, there was, they did have men in that day. Jesus asked them that back up in chapter, chapter 12 when he, when he says in verse 27, or in chapter 12 we're at, look at verse 27, And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? There were people among the Jews and the scribes and Pharisees who claimed that they had power to cast out demons and devils, and so that may have been what he was referring to here. There could have been someone that believed they cast this demon out of this man. Jesus goes on and tells the story that what this man does after he's relieved of this unclean spirit, our Lord compares him, his heart, his soul, he compares it to a house. Jesus said after the demon is gone, this man, he sweeps the house, he cleans it up, he, he makes everything right. But yet he puts nothing back in the place of the demon that's gone. And Jesus said eventually what happens is that demon returns. And this time he comes with seven others, unclean spirits or demons. In other words, this, this story of this man, he, he eventually, he, uh, eventually or at the beginning initially he had one demon. Now he has eight. That is the heart of this story. And Jesus is going to apply that to the very heart of these scribes and Pharisees in their generation, and we also will make application of it to our generation. Now, just to say a few things about these unclean spirits or demons, just so you will know what we're dealing with here. There's no one who knows more about demons than Jesus Christ. I would, I would advise you or I would uh, kindly exhort you that anytime you, anytime you want to know about the enemy or the evil one, to read God's book before you read anyone else's book. If you read other people's books, you're going you're gonna to be out there in weird territory in, in just a little while. Read the Lord, what the Lord said about it. He knows more about them than anyone. This demon was called a spirit, which means a non-physical body. Uh, they manifest themselves through the physical bodies of individuals, meaning this spirit hadn't, is not made up of atoms or molecules like you and I have. This spirit in this text is referred to as unclean, which means it was corrupt, wicked, anti-God, filthy, and vile. That is the kind of life that Satan and his demons deal with. This unclean spirit in the story is in living in a human being. It lived within this man. That means it controlled his life, his thoughts, 
his actions. It kept him restless and kept him in continual sin. Also, this unclean spirit had no desire to leave, but our Lord mentioned that it is gone out of a man for whatever reason, and however that happened, that did occur. But it had no desire to leave, but could not resist whatever power it was that cast this demon out of this man initially. Our Lord proved that several times in the New Testament when He would cast out demons Himself. I also want to remind you that this unclean spirit was not omnipresent. It mentioned several places he was. He was in the man because he had to come out of the man in verse 43. And then the unclean spirit is in dry places seeking rest and finding none. Then he returns back to the man. So uh, a demon or an unclean spirit is not omnipresent. They cannot be everywhere at one time. Uh, They certainly are not omnipotent because this particular unclean spirit had to give way to a certain power And they are not omniscient. They do not know all things. Also, unclean spirits have a will. You see that in verse number 44. Then he saith, or the unclean spirit said, I will. And that's consistent when you read about uh, Satan and his emissaries out of the book of Isaiah. I will ascend, I will do this, and I will do that. The unclean spirit also is very possessive. He says in verse 44, I will return into my house. Meaning the man that he had left, the unclean spirit, still considered that particular individual his. And he could go and return at will. The unclean spirit also in the text is unaffected by moral reformation. When the unclean spirit left, this man cleaned up. This man swept his house. He garnished his house. He got everything in tip-top shape. He did everything like that he wanted to do, and yet the unclean spirit came right back. Self-righteousness is not a restraint against sin or against evil. And then in verse 45, the unclean spirit teaches us that we, he can, or the unclean spirits can, increase in wickedness. As the Bible said that when this one returned, he had seven more with them. That's just a few things from this text about unclean spirits. There's much more in the Word of God, but uh, that's sufficient because that's what the Lord recorded for us in this story. So this is a story that Jesus is using to illustrate to the scribes and Pharisees exactly what is going on in their heart, what is going on in their generation, and the results will be judgment and worse than the beginning. Jesus has a purpose for this story. He has a purpose for comparing the scribes and Pharisees to that generation as he does in our text this morning. Dr. Warren Wiersbe has a most simple and accurate approach to these verses. And uh, so if I may borrow the two, uh, two thoughts he has concerning this by way of outline, just so you can understand a little simpler what is going on here. Dr. Wiersbe says there is a primary application of this story, and we'll look at that in just a moment, and then there will be a personal application to the story. First of all, look with me at the primary application of the story as we preach this morning on the subject of clean but empty. Clean but empty. If there's anything that could define the scribes and Pharisees in Jesus' day, it is that, clean but and yet empty, unoccupied. 
They were clean on the outside. These are men who fast. These are men who wash their hands at the right time. These are men who know the law of God and they'll condemn you in a heartbeat if you violate anything that they think is according to the Word of God. Clean on the outside. Remember Jesus told them one time that they thought they were clean, uh, but they were really like septic tanks. They were really like sewers. Jesus said, on the inside you're vile, meaning they were full of self-righteousness, which brings no purity in the sight of God. The primary application of this story is to the scribes and Pharisees and the nation of Israel, especially in the generation that was present when Jesus was preaching and teaching. In the Old Testament, Israel repeatedly dealt with their sins and their rebellion against God. And that sin and rebellion plagued them throughout their history. You know the story. Whether it be in the days of the judges or whether it be in the days of the kings, they would clean their act up and then they would go in sin. God would send a judge, they would clean their act up and then they'd go right back. They would do that repeatedly in the days of the kings and kings and chronicles and in the days of the prophets. God would send a prophet among those kings and among the nation and they would clean up or reform and then they would go right back to idolatry or adultery or whatever the sin might be. God even sent them into captivity for 70 years into Babylon uh, because of their sin. And when Israel came back, they did not have the involvement in idolatry that they had previously, but fast forward from the Old Testament prophets and their return to their homeland, fast forward to Jesus' day, John the Baptist and Jesus' day, while the scribes and Pharisees, descendants of all of those in the Old Testament, look where they are now. They are not worshiping idols. They are not offering their children up to pagan idols as their forefathers did. They're not doing that but yet they are living with a self-righteous, a self-reformation, a legalistic moralism, a judgmental position in life where they believe they are right with God, they believe their house is clean, they believe that they are the top of the line, and they will not humble themselves and bow before God's Christ, bow before the Messiah, bow before the Savior that is standing in their presence, working miracle after miracle, proving He is the Son of God, they will not bow to Him. They are living in self-righteousness, in moralism. They are living in legalism. And that's still very much alive today. And it's more prevalent and dominant in church life than anywhere else. And it will leave you empty. You see, cleaning up, reforming intellectually, Reforming morally, doing all the things on the outside, cannot fill the empty house. It cannot thwart evil. It cannot keep the enemy from controlling your life. There's only one thing that can do that, and it's not really a thing. It is nevertheless a person, and that is Jesus Christ. If Christ does not live within you today in regenerating grace and power, then you are susceptible to anything the world may bring. It may be the filth of an unclean spirit, or it may be the self-righteousness of a Pharisee, but neither one will get you in the kingdom of God, and neither one will give you eternal life. In our text, Jesus is explaining something to us that has happened to the people of His generation. 
These are people who heard John Baptist preach. These are people who by multitudes came down to the Jordan to be baptized of John. These are people who wanted to morally clean up on the outside, make their life look good on the outside. And yet on the inside, they are still as empty as they ever was. The nation of Israel should have believed the prophets. They should have repented of unbelief. They should have come to the Savior. If they had, they would be full of spiritual life instead of their own self-moral living. This same crowd that I'm reading to you about today who's standing here and Jesus is telling them this story, this same crowd in a few weeks, in a few days, in a few hours, this same crowd will say, crucify Him, crucify Him. They will mock Him. They will spit on His face. They will put a crown of thorns on His head. They will stick a spear in His side along with the Roman soldiers. And they will mock Him and ridicule Him and turn their back upon Him and walk away and feel in their heart that they are still morally superior and clean to any generation that has ever lived. Our Lord previously in the last few Sundays talked to them about judgment and the generation when he talked to them about the Ninevites and the queen of Sheba from the south. He talked about Jonah and he talked about judgment in that generation. And Jesus is saying to them the penalty for rejecting Christ will come at the day of judgment. But he's telling them here it don't just wait till the day of judgment. Penalty for rejecting Christ brings an immediate judgment. And that immediate judgment is you live a life of emptiness. You live a life that cannot be satisfied. You live a life of moralism and legalism. And the whole time that you're looking down on the rest of society that is doing things that you don't do and you feel good about that, the whole time your life is empty of the peace and the love and the grace of Almighty God. So the primary application of this story is to Jesus' generation. John had told them to repent. John had said, You generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And yet they stood back and they looked at themselves as morally superior and as, and as righteous, more righteous than anyone else. It was these men who could point out to Jesus Oh, your disciples pluck corn on the Sabbath? That's a no-no. They could point out, we saw one of your men eat and didn't wash his hands. He's going to hell. That's, that's this crowd. Moralism, legalism, intellectual reformation. They had all their T's crossed and all their I's dotted, but they had no clue who was standing in front of them. They had no clue who it was that had just said a few verses back, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I know preachers today who strut their intellectual reformation thinking. I know preachers today who strut their liberal theology. And the problem with both crowds is they have no Jesus in either situation. Brother, this is about Christ. This is about the person of the Son of God. This is not about what's underneath your church name on your shingle. 
This is not about what's stamped on the outside of your Bible. This is not about the clothes you wear and the places you go and don't go and the judgment you pass on others who do. This is about whether or not Christ lives within you or whether He does not live within you. And I tell you, on the authority of God's Word, there are many clean houses in Baptist churches today, but many hearts that are just as empty. They look on the outside. If, this man, if anybody goes to heaven, this guy's going. Man, he's been in this pew for 40 years. He's never done this, never done that. He always does this, and he always does that. Yes, but is the house occupied? If it is, with what? Is it empty? Who cleaned the house? Who garnished the house? Who made things better? Did he do it on his own, or was it the regenerating power of Almighty God. That's the practical or the primary application of this story. You see, there is a sense in which that generation to whom Jesus spoke had been cleaned up, or the demon cast out, if you will, on the outside. John the Baptist preaching had cleaned some of that up. As a matter of fact, take just turn with me to Mark's Gospel, if you will, for just a moment. Mark chapter 6. Here's a great biblical illustration of what I'm saying. It'll save us time and we can move on. But John Baptist had preached, and a lot of the demon, if you will, remember the analogy here, a lot of the houses had cleaned up through John's preaching. Man, people were following John. They loved it. I mean, John was blasting this and blasting that. And man, Baptists get on board that, that blasting stuff. I mean, just rip everything coming and going. And, and, uh, but yet nothing was replaced. Think of the crowds that came to John and were baptized. Where are they now? Well, they're still there in the text. They'll be there, a lot of them at Calvary, when Christ is crucified, thanking God He's dead. Think of the multitudes that even followed Jesus. But then there was a gradual and consistent hardening of the hearts because Christ slowed down the miracles and, ra- and kind of ratcheted up the discipleship. He started talking about taking up your cross and following Him, suffering for the gospel and bearing the price of being a part of His kingdom. Look at Mark chapter 6 with me, verse number 19 and 20. Now this is, this is on the heels of, of John the Baptist and Herod. You remember there, uh, well, let me go back to verse number, uh, number 14 of Mark 6. And King Herod heard of him, for his name was spread abroad, and he said that John Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Remember, they thought Jesus was John Baptist. Herod had John killed. We'll read that in a moment. Others said this is Elijah. Others said that it's a prophet as, as one of the, as, or as one of the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, It is John whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John. Now he's going back before he had John killed and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. You remember Herod had a wife that didn't belong to him. And here's the problem, verse 18. For John had said, Herod, it is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and would, and would have killed him, but she could not. Now l- listen to verse 20. This is talking about Herod's opinion of John before the day when John put his finger in Herod's face and said, you got the wrong woman. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and a holy, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things 
and heard him gladly. Just because you hear a preacher gladly don't mean he's preaching the Word of God. In this case, he was, but it also doesn't mean you're hearing it like it needs to be preached. John Baptist was a tough preacher. But the Bible said Herod feared him. It also said that Herod observed him, which meant that Herod kindly looked out after him. And then it has an unusual statement in the King James text. It's, it's translated a little different from other texts, but it doesn't improve on it. It's just kind of a strange statement. But it said, and when he heard him, notice this, he did many things. In other words, the author is wanting us to understand that Herod listened to John. He's, he's a little puzzled by everything that John is saying. But the force of what is said here in the text indicates that when Herod heard John preach, Herod knew there were things in his life that he needed to rearrange a little bit. And I don't know what happened with him and his woman. His woman didn't like John preaching that Herod shouldn't have, you know, Herod shouldn't be with her. I don't know what happened, but I'm not certain that the outcome would have been the same if Herodias had not been involved in this. But either way, it came down to this. Herod would some how kind of clean up a little every now and then when he heard John preach. Well, you know, John, all these people following him, I, maybe I need to tweak a few things in my life. But the day John put his finger on the very heart of Herod's adultery and sin, then he had him killed. But up until that point, he heard John gladly. He was, uh, he was amused by this guy. He, 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 he watched the crowds respond to him. And... Uh, some suggest, and I tend to agree, that when Herod heard John, had Herod been living today, if he were living today, and he heard John Baptist preaching, Herod would probably say, well, I'm not going to give up my relationship with this woman, but i tell you what I will do. I will delete some of my ugly texts. I'll clean up the house a little bit there. He'd have deleted some of his ugly texts and arrogant texts that he'd sent out to people and clean up. Maybe he'd cut back. Instead of three beers tonight, Herod cut back to one. Maybe Herod would drop his subscription to the, uh, to the uh, ungodly channel for a few weeks and then maybe pick it back. That, that's what the text seems to indicate, that he did many things. Herod, what, what's, what's happening here? When he hears John preach, little demons are leaving, but Herod never put anything back. And by the time this is over, the house is full again, and Herod will go out into an eternity without knowing God. Herod may have said, you know, I need to get rid of my kingly stuff, and I need to wear some clothes like John. I need to look like John. Fast forward to our day, I need to put me on a white shirt and tie, and I need to change my Bible from brown to black and get back with the way and all this stuff. That Herod, Herod was doing all of these little things. He, he was doing it. If he were alive today, Herod would be saying the right things, and probably if Herod were alive today, in the initial stages of his listening to John Baptist, Herod would probably be invited to speak at the youth conference this summer. Herod, come and tell us what preaching. And I promise you his wife would have done a women's conference. I promise you that. She would have had to. Not mention the adultery, but she would have to come and do a women's conference. There were little demons fleeing when John preached. But this is the story Jesus is saying. Nothing comes back in its place. And Herod is not a changed man. And neither are you. If you're trying to clean it up from the outside in. Listen, I grew up under preaching that cleaned up from the outside in. 
90% of what I heard coming up was about getting it right on the outside. Very little about getting it right on the inside. Could I tell you something? Because I love you and because I preach this Bible, it don't start from the outside in, brother. It starts from the inside out. And if the inside's right, you don't have to worry a whole lot about the outside. So many people today think if they get the outside right, the inside is right. No. Some of the most arrogant, ugly, bitter, full of the devil, evil people you'll ever meet in your life are sitting right there today in white shirts and ties, carry a black Bible, sing out of a certain hymn book. They know when to stand, when to wave a hand, when to sit down. They know how to put their hair up. They know the length of everything except talking. They know everything about everything in life. And that's all they live for and talk about. And the house is so swept and garnished. The house is, you could almost eat off the floor. But on the inside, there is no life whatsoever. That's the tragedy. Clean, but empty. Now let's look at, finally at this personal application. It's not enough to clean the house. That's what Jesus is saying. The Pharisees were proud of their clean houses. Mere religion, mere reformation. When I say mere religion, I mean old-time religion or new-time religion or any religion in between. Mere religion or reformation will not save a soul. And it will not get you to heaven. There must be, according to John 3, there must be regeneration. There must be a bringing of life, a giving of life by God in the dead soul of man before anything can change that will last. Has that happened to you? We cannot be neutral about Jesus. Look what He said to them in verse 45. Even so shall it be, meaning the story I just told, it's going to be just like that with this, gen with this wicked generation. Church, that is sobering words. And you have to connect those words with verse 24 through 29. Satan's house is the body of the person who is possessed by this unclean spirit. And this, these spirits were restless and they sought bodies in which to reside. And when the unclean spirit left this man, yes, his life was changed for the better. His house, his body was swept and garnished. But he was still as empty as he's ever been in life. And because there was no Christ there, no Holy Spirit there, no Holy Spirit indwelling, when the demon returned, he brought seven others with him, and this man's life ended in tragedy. Matthew 15, 8, Jesus said, The people, this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Peter said in 2 Peter 2, verse 20 through 22, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, listen to what he said, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. And then Peter gives us this proverb. The dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that is washed to her wallowing in the mire. That's exactly what happens in this story for the nation of Israel and the descendants of that nation, the scribes and the Pharisees. But it is exactly what is happening today 
within the church and especially within our world. The scribes and Pharisees illustrate an upright religious kind of man who has no saving relationship to God. If you look around you at people who for many years of your life, they fit the picture of what it was to be a Christian. And then all of a sudden one day they are gone. They are gone. They are out. They are gone. Away from not just the church attendance, but away from God. Could it be that they had swept and garnished all this stuff? You know? It, it's, it's a problem I have with telling people with all of this moralistic preaching. Now, before you condemn that, before you tweet about me, let me finish the message. If I come here to you every Sunday and just tell you you're not to do this and you are to do that, I'm going to tell you something. You can't quit doing anything and you can't begin or continue to do anything that's wrong or right without the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't do it. Preacher, I know a man who drunk for 40 years and he quit on his own. He ain't drunk again. Don't make a bit of difference. That clean house ain't going to heaven without Jesus. Period. I know a man who used to cuss, and all of a sudden he quit cussing. And he, I, I ain't heard him say a cuss word in decades. I believe he got saved. Doesn't mean a thing. What means something is the reason why. And that reason must be Jesus Christ. Ephesians 3.17 That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. That's it. Him living within us, dwelling. And as far as this moralistic stuff and this morality, you can preach all day to a young person that they need to be like Daniel, and they can try, and in some ways they might, but they can't without Jesus. You can preach to a young girl that she ought to remain pure till marriage all of her life. And she may or she may not. But I'll tell you this, even if she does or if she doesn't, the real issue here is about honoring Christ through what He demands in His Word. That's what it's about. It's not about here's our rules, live by them. But we're like the scribes. We believe that our rules are God. They are not His Son. Well, preacher... Will a man live holy? Will a man live moral? Will he live like God would have him if he gets saved? Listen to Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now notice why you and I are His. That we should be holy, and without blame before Him in love. Before Him in love. These scribes and Pharisees are standing before that same Him, H-I-M. But they're not standing there before Him because they're in Him. They're standing there before Him, denying Him and rejecting Him because in their heart of hearts, they believe that their self-righteousness is as pleasing to Him as anything in life. It is not. I want to tell you again this morning, and it's my privilege to tell you this. Matter of fact, it's my calling to tell you this. It's the very reason I live and continue to pastor is to tell you this. God is pleased 
first and foremost in His darling Son. In Him I am well pleased. And the only way my life or your life or any life will ever be pleasing to God is when you and I are in Christ. And the only way we can be in Christ is for Him to give us regenerating power and raise us up out of deadness, give us faith to believe, and put us in Christ when we trust Him and believe upon His name. Outside of that, you can be clean, but just as empty. Jesus said, as I close in verse 45, the last state of that man is worse. Now, that isn't hard to figure out. If you can do math, you can figure that out. But you also do a little theology. The man had one demon. That demon left. House got all swept and garnished. And then because there was nothing put back in there, seven others came back with him. And one of the key words is that little word, my, in verse 44. Then he, or the demon, or the unclean spirit saith, I will return into my house. You see why he could come and go? Because there was no change of ownership. And he came back to a clean house. I want to tell you, the devil can use a clean house just like a dirty one. He just wants to control. And Satan wants to control you, and Satan wants to dominate you, and Satan wants to send you to eternal torment without ever having paid a price for you or died for you. Think about what Christ did for sinners. Think about His sacrifice. They illustrate, the scribes do, where a righteous life, self-righteous, with no saving relationship, will end up. Jesus' warning is a warning to us individually, it was a warning to the nation of Israel and the scribes individually. I think it's a warning to us. It's a warning to our nation. It's a warning to our church. It's a warning to our families, to all of us, not to play games. Our hearts will either be full of the fellowship of God through faith, or it'll be desperately empty. And that's what makes people's lives so bitter. And some of the people that I know who live the cleanest, they are so bitter and arrogant. and They're just all the time angry about something. And I guess you would be that way if you're trying to live up to some standard of moralism or legalism to make yourself right with God. The joy is in Jesus Christ. We find in Him this morning real life. Matter of fact, Jesus Himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. Without Him, there's no going. I am the truth. Without Him, there's no knowing. And I am the life. Without Him, there's no living. This is Jesus Christ. Now, if I was living in Jesus' day and had preached this message, and we'll be dismissed in a moment, and we went out in the streets of Jerusalem, we would find just right out here at the corner of Abington and Fairview, and maybe over here at the other street, People who would be standing there saying, I thank God I'm not like other people. I fast twice a day and I pray. That's what you're going to hear. So many people today are hearing this message. Thank God we're not like the church up the road. Or we're better than this church over here. Or we're this or we're that and we're that. Don't worry about comparing. Listen, the only one you're going to give an account to is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our standard. He is our Savior.
Christ is calling you today to trust Him, to believe Him. The truth is clear. The proof is plain. Where are you? What's in your house? Is your house clean? Is it swept and garnished? Preacher, I've kept my life clean. Never went to a movie. Never cut my grass, my shirt off. Never went on vacation in shorts. I am right with God. I never drunk but half a Coca-Cola at a time. And on Sunday, I never took a nap with my eyes closed. I have got to be right with God. No, you're a light-legged, tired man in need of a whole drink is really, I guess, what you are. Here's what Jesus says for me and you to do. John 4, 14. Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. Have you ever noticed the legalists and the moralists? They, can't, they, never, they never have an end to what they're requiring. Once you, once you get to their level, it's almost like Christian Scientology. Old-fashioned old legalism, old-time religion. IFB and SBC, Independent Fundamental and Southern Baptist Legalism in whatever groups those show up nowadays. It's never enough. You get to this level, and then you have to go to this level. You have to maintain this certain balance down here to be accepted of them. I'm not accepted. I don't care whether men accept me. I'm accepted in the Beloved by Jesus Christ. And it is Christ to whom I answer and Christ to whom you answer. And Paul said in Romans 14, every one of us shall give an account of himself, not to the preacher, but to God. Jesus said, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Come drink at that fountain. Come to Christ. That's what he's asking the scribes to do. As a matter of fact, that's what John did. John never said, come follow me. John never said, take up what I'm doing. Man, they were saying, man, don't you love John the Baptist? Get his t-shirt, get a CD, get a hat with JB on the front of it. I mean, go with John. No, John was standing on the bank, said, the Lamb of God, look to the Lamb of God. John was saying, I must decrease, he must increase. It was John who was pointing men to Christ. And it is Christ that I'm pointing you to this morning. And then the holiness you live will be a holiness that will glorify God. The convictions you carry will be convictions that are biblical. The standards you keep, the things you do and don't do will be to God's glory. And you won't be so frustrated with ever-changing tables of requirements. And you can do just like Jesus said. You can rest in Christ and be content knowing that all is well. Who's in your house? That house is going to be occupied. And this story boils down to three things. Number one, your house is occupied with a bunch of evil, filthy, corrupt stuff that shouldn't be there. Number two, somewhere in life, somebody's preaching bothered you or mom and dad's switch bothered you, and you got rid of some of that stuff and tried to clean up. And you're doing the best you can. But nobody's in the house, and so while the house is clean, the front door is open, and whatever and whenever and how many ever wants to come in is free to come in. But there's a third option. Christ can dwell in you. And thank God the house is full. And no evil spirit, no demon, no unclean spirit can occupy a dwelling 
where Christ and the Holy Ghost lives and dwells. Father, I want to thank you this morning for this sobering, sobering word from your lips. Lord, these people that you spoke to, these scribes and Pharisees, although, Lord, when we read this, it sounds like you were harsh and unloving to them. This is the same people that Matthew tells us that you looked out over the city and you wept and said, Behold, Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered you as a mother doth gather her, hen, or her chicks. Lord, you cared and you loved these people and you wanted their lives to be full of your person and your salvation. Father, thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth. And I pray if there be a heart here today clean but unoccupied, if there be a heart here today clean but empty, and there's no spirit, no Christ living there, may this very day through your regenerating power, may they call out unto you. And Lord, may they ask for saving grace. And Lord, may you move and dwell in their hearts to produce a life of holiness, a life of absence of blame, a life of character and integrity, a life of Christ's likeness and fruitfulness and joy and peace, a life of purpose and a life that is secure and no evil or no unclean can ever dwell there again, a life completely changed. May that happen all because of your cross, your death, your burial, and your resurrection and ascension. Thank you this morning for being our Savior, our Redeemer. Thank you for this story. Help us to hide these words deep in our hearts that we might not sin against God. Change lives today for your glory and for your honor. We'll thank you and we'll praise you. And I pray again this morning for all of these young people and children sitting here whose mother and fathers have done exactly what the Bible has taught them to do, and that is to keep their children's house clean, to keep them as clean as possible, to raise them up as holy as possible, but Father, just as these parents know, and I know, without Jesus Christ, that clean life can never satisfy God. So I pray that, Lord, on that time, in that place, in the way that only you and your wisdom can do, Lord, may you move in and occupy them and save them so they can live a life to your glory and to your praise. Thank you again for the privilege to be here this day. I do pray for Brother Dermont yonder this morning. Lord, be with him. Help him. God, you know his physical need. I pray for Brother Leon's request. God, you'd help him and this church. Uh, Lord, I ask you to help us to know what we should do in regard to that need. And help our families as we go our separate ways this morning. Lord, that we would always love you and serve you. Thank you again for your great salvation. Thank you for your perfect word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.